Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Morgue Ship by Ray Bradbury. First published in Planet Stories, uh, summer issue 1944. Um, I think that is actually fairly significant uh, for the story. This is deep into World War II, and this is a story about sort of the weary weariness of war. Um, this is not a famous story by Ray Bradbury. In fact, it has only had one subsequent publication, and that was in a uh, university critical collection of Ray Bradbury short stories. Um, I can see why it's not well known in a certain sense, but it has a lot of beauty in it. And um, it's kind of pulpy, but um, I submitted it to you for your approval, and you approved. So what did you see in this story that you liked, Eric? Candidly, Jesse, I found the story, as, as you did, I infer from your first comment, dated. Sure. Uh, I also find it pulpy, not uh, merely in the sense of melodramatic, but in the sense of simplistic. Um, yep. I, I don't mind melodrama at all. I, in fact, I'm, you know, women call me girly, girlish <laughs> when I go go to movie theaters. You know, I, I, I can watch a Nicholas Sparks, a movie made from a Nicholas Sparks novel and, and weep with the best of them or the worst of them, depending on your attitude. Um, I'm not at all against superheroes and uh, Superman and you know, horrible lurking monsters. You know, I'm, I'm all for melodrama. What I don't like, though, is melodrama that expects that the heightened emotions are adequate to maintain my interest when they are monochromatic, um, which I would call simplistic. I think one of the differences between melodrama and propaganda is that propaganda is simplistic. It's it's single message is the thing it tries to get across. And this story is, I think, propagandistic. Uh, the way, uh, correct me if you think this is a, an inadequate summary, uh, the the morgue ship of the title is a spacefaring vessel that goes around to the wreckage of spaceships involved in a long-running, enormously costly, in lives and treasure, war between uh, Venus and Earth. And, uh, or maybe it's Mars and Earth. But anyway, we wind up near Venus. But it's, it's, they're aliens. I'm sorry that I've forgotten whether they are from the outer or the inner relation to the sun. They're Venus, uh, from Venus. They're from Venus. So it is Venus and Earth that are at war. Um, thank you. And our ship, we have the viewpoint of uh, a character named Sam Burnett. Uh, Sam is a veteran of the work of the morgue ships. They are protected by the Purple Cross, obviously a transformation of the Red Cross. Just as Red Cross ambulances are supposed to be able to go out during World War II, certainly during World War I, 
and retrieve wounded from a battlefield and themselves, that is the Red Cross ambulance, be immune from attack. Not that they always were, but they're supposed to be. So the Red, the Purple Cross ships are supposed to be immune from attack. They show up after the battle and look for survivors. And if not survivors, then they just bring in the bodies and embalm them. And in fact, they always are bodies, I guess, because if a ship blows up, the atmosphere is gone. You know, they can't survive. Um, and they embalm them and they put them on shelves. And when they fill up to 100, they go back to the earth so that these these corpses can be returned to the families of their birth and given respectful, honorable burials. In this story, um, Sam Burnett is on what he promises is going to be his last run. Um, they've got 97 corpses already. They need three more to be able to go back. Um it really bothers him that he has spent the war in this cleanup operation instead of being able to actually get out there and do something to defeat the enemy. What happens is that they bring in a corpse. Apparently, we're supposed to believe that they examine the corpses of the enemy and then put them back into space. They bring in a corpse who turns out not to be dead but alive under a micro-thin mask that surrounds his head so he had this little little tiny area in which he could breathe and when he gets on board he uh, takes out the mask he takes the gun off his uh, waist holster and uh, since these ships are by law unarmed he commandeers it and sends the ship after the supreme ruler of all of the venus um the, the Venus forces. Um, the guy they've brought onto the ship at first is his majordomo. In fact, through all kinds of machinations, um, Sam and his fellow uh, moored ship crewmen, they are only two, Rice, um, wind up uh, having both of these characters, uh, excuse me, wind up. Um, killing the other guy they don't bring him on board but when they crush the body of the other guy whom the um the internal enemy the trojan horse wants to have brought aboard so that he can be revived and brought back to uh to venus um, when the trojan horse fellow sees his leader being crushed by the claw that would go out and retrieve the body from space he turns to kill Sam, but Sam has anticipated all of this and he turns in such a way that it becomes possible to take the shot, but in fact wind up having this guy, the Trojan horse, killed. So at the very end of the story, we get a change of viewpoint as Rice puts the now retrieved body of the Supreme Leader, which we want for identification and of the Trojan horse enemy and of Sam Burnett into slots 97, 98, 99, and 100. And having filled up the ship, the morgue ship can now go back. And having killed the leader, presumably the war will end. So Sam Burnett has, in fact, by his death, performed the glorious act of saving the lives of countless, countless people on both sides. Um, he becomes a war hero, but it costs him his life. So it's a morgue ship in more than one way. It's his morgue. Yeah. Um, 
And that, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, this story really says, damn, I'm not doing my bit for fighting the enemy. And it's OK for me to die in the process. It's the American version of I'm going to be a kamikaze pilot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think at the end of it, you know, the very last words when it switches viewpoint. Um, well, he, here's how it ends. He's dying. Burnett is dying. They've already got the head of the bad guy and they've got the corpse of the Trojan horse enemy. As he's dying, he says, ain't I one hell of a patriot rice? Then everything got dark except Rice's face. And that was starting to dissolve. 98, Lethla, that's the Trojan horse guy. 99, Creer, that's the leader. He could still see Rice standing over him for a long time, breathing out and in. Down under the tables, these are uh, embalming tables, the blood pumps pulsed and pulsed, thick and slow. Rice looked down at Burnett, and then at the empty shelf at the far end of the room, and then back at Burnett again. And then he said softly, 100. So I think we're supposed to believe when it switches to Rice's viewpoint that we have a wonderful sense of noble completion. And the number 100 has that feel to mm -hmm. it as well. Mm -hmm. um, but frankly, while this may have been welcome propaganda in 1944, I think nowadays enough people, even those who choose to go to war, think that the idea of just dying for war, dying to kill the enemy, um, I, I think in the West, at least, uh, this is thought of as uh, fanatical and mistaken. Well, it's a different time now, and one of the words you use there. Um, choose to go to war, right? Um, and World War II, nobody in the United States chose, I mean, you could choose to go to war, but that that's how we do it today, right? You join the army, you choose to join the army, or you choose to join the Navy. But back then... No, the United States chose to go to war also. We stayed out of World War II until Pearl Harbor. And then when the country officially went to war, there were still people who either escaped you know, they ran away or they, uh, you know, they they hid uh, somehow and somewhere or they became conscientious objectors. You don't have to go to war just because there's a draft. Uh, I want to States. We didn't we didn't Shanghai child soldiers mm -hmm. and point guns at their heads. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I want to I want to there's um, you've, you've touched on a couple of things I I think are very interesting, like. What, one of the things I like about Ray Bradbury is, is more the way he tells stories than the uh, subjects of his stories. Because, I mean, he writes some really weird stories, that guy. He wrote a story about a baby wanting to kill kill its mother and father. Um, and I think the reason he wrote that story is because he had had a new baby and the baby's screaming, you know. Babies do that. They, 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 they're uncomfortable and they want you to fix it. But they don't have words. They can't use their words. So they just scream. And in a, if that keeps you up uh, night after night, I mean, it could be. The name of that story is The Small Assassin. And it, it's it's a crazy story. But I like it anyways because of the way he tells it. And um, there's a couple of different sort of themes that are flowing through this very, um, 
very sedate sort of war story. Um, one is color. Color is really interesting in here. Um, the other is sort of the visceral nature of, of dealing with bodies, dead bodies, and living bodies that will soon be dead. Or we've got two two um, aliens here that are one one is it looked how's the line go oh yeah it, the body looked a little too dead <laughs> right um, which is a funny way of putting things but it's quiet it's too quiet exactly um, so I want to just start pointing out some of the color things and then I want to point to a very specific one okay. So the name of the ship, by the way, is the Constellation. I'm not sure if that has um, more more um, significance than the fact that, you know, they've got a starport, which is where the, the arm goes through and brings through the dead bodies. And, of course, it has many, many bodies in it. So I guess these aliens that look kind of like stars, right? They're insectoid or, I don't know. Like arachnids I they or something. They look like spiders. Yeah, so they've got uh, sort of a star shape. Um, but it says the very first color here is pallid, pallid and quiet. The three bodies lay on the cold, transparent tables around him. Machine stirred, revolved, and hummed. So we've got the mixing of color and the viscerality of, if that's a word, of things there's always things humming and moving in the cold dead space that is throughout this story he didn't see them he didn't see anything but a red haze over his mind it blotted out the far wall of the laboratory where the shelves went up and down numbered in scarlet keeping the bodies of soldiers from all further harm interesting he stood there in his rumpled white surgical gown staring at his fingers, gloved in bone-white rubber, feeling all tight and wild in, inside himself. This is a really interesting description of the... Why is this guy like this? It's so strange. And then a little later down the page, working on 95, 96, and 97 now, blood pumps, preservative, slight surgery. A little farther. Burnett peeled off the gloves of his huge, red, soft hands slapped them into the into a floor incinerator mouth a little farther down the page two men rice and himself sharing a cozy morgue ship with a hundred other men who had forgotten quite suddenly however to talk again wow <laughs> 10 years of it every hour so this war's been going for 10 years 10 years every hour of those 10 years eating like maggots inside working out to the surface of Burnett's face working under the husk of his starved eyes and starved limbs, starved for life, starved for action. So this guy's got a lot going on underneath the surface of his character, right? He's not just, he's not just a, um, uh, I did my duty. He, he really does sort of have a death wish or at least some problem. A little farther. Nothing was worth running around for anymore. Any, an, another body there had been 100,000 bodies preceding it. Nothing unusual about a body with blood cooling in it. A little farther down. You never catch up with war. This is a line that repeats uh, many times throughout the story. All the color is ahead of you. The drive of the orange rocket against the, and across... 
rocket traces across stars, whamming of steel-nosed bomb into elusive targets, the titanic explosions and breathless pursuits, the flags. And, okay, so it goes on and on and on like this throughout the story. Um, and we always get go back to the chug-chug of the blood pumps down below and the, his own heart waiting warm and heavy at the base of his throat. Um, he's got all of this, the color, the blood flowing across, right? And then on page 55, there's this one little line. On the way up, Burnett thought about it, about Lethla. And I want to maybe just pause and talk about this alien's name is Lethla. Apparently he's the assistant to the head alien bad guy. Um, it makes me two, th two, two things it thinks of. Lethe, right, that river um, for uh, visiting the underworld. And, of course, Lethal. Um, Lethla is the name of this alien. About Lethla, poised like a white feather at the top, holding death in his hand. So, um, there's a famous novel called The Four Feathers. Have you heard of this novel? The Four Feathers? Yeah. It got turned into a whole bunch of movie adaptations. That's probably how most people know it. Um, I don't think they do. Okay, so it's about um, some British uh, officers in uh, some 19th century war. And they, um, they are all excited to go off to war except for one of them who is getting married instead. And when the war heats up, the married one is tricked or forced or cajoled into war by having a white chicken feather put into his, uh, you know, jacket pocket. Um, women would go around um, town putting feathers in men's pockets in groups, and it was a symbol of cowardice. So if you're walking around London town and you're a gentleman who's not at war, and you get one of these feathers, it's a symbol of you being a coward. A chicken. Uh, a chicken, no, exactly. But it's the white feather, right? The dreaded white feather that men receive. Um, Ray Bradbury is one of the few science fiction writers of the period who was not in the war. He didn't contribute at all. He was... You know, he wasn't the perfect age for it, but he also wasn't the worst age for it. But he's also not much of a... He would make a terrible soldier, right? This eh, this is a very gentle, gentle man who never drove a car, uh, was afraid of flying. Um, you know, it, just an in, incredibly inappropriate soldier he would have made. Um, and... Almost every one of his colleagues who was of the right age is, is participating somehow in the war. Um, and I just thought that that was a, a really striking image. And then given how it ends with, you know, and even that this is a war story with a, a character who's, you know, he's participating in the war, but not in the, in the combat role. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I think, uh, just if you know, if you love Ray Bradbury, I think this is a very interesting story. Um, I want to just point more to that visceral stuff farther along. This is on the second to last page. The claw glided towards 
Creary, I guess is how we say his name, without a sound, now dreamlike in its slowness. The metal claw cuddled Creary in its shiny palm. You know, Lethla, there's an old saying that only dead men come aboard the constellation. I believe it. Um, and farther on down with that claw out there in the sky, fists made blunt flesh noises. It's all, I, I think Ray Bradbury recycled everything from his own life. And I, 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 this might be like his way of dealing with it. And I don't know if this is, you know, designed to resonate with the audience of oh, a lot of people who are at home not participating in the war. But 1944 is when it's really getting hot. I mean, this is this is the the high point of the war in terms of casualties, and um, I think it's interesting in that respect. And to look at it as sort of a science fiction writer's way of translating what he sees as uh, you know in the news about what's going on and and the feelings. I doubt that anybody actually stuck a white feather in his his lapel, but I think he would have been aware of that. Um, and I think I think it's worth worth pointing out that at least according to to widely accepted sources, mm-hmm. um, it's not that Bradbury didn't do his bit in World War II. It's that he was in fact rejected from military service right. because of bad eyesight. Right. And um, the, the fact that he was rejected may, in fact, have made him feel that he hadn't done his patriotic duty. He was at an ideal age to serve. He was born in 1920. When we went to war at the end of 1941, yeah. he was 21. He sold his first story at 22. He could have been putting on his uniform at 22. But he was rejected for military service. Right. Uh, I can I can concur with the notion that there may be much driving his um, his own feelings um, in uh, of himself and his own history in, in creating this story. To me, one of the reasons the story is significant, though, is that it serves as an object lesson. I'm not as um, impressed by his use of color as as you are. I'm not saying you shouldn't be, but if you if you look for the use of the word white, you will find that it applies just about equally to the accoutrements of the earth, the human side, as to the descriptions of the Venusian side. Mm -hmm. So if this were a story that intended us to, now of course authors do things without their intention, I understand. But if if this were a story that intended to have us compare uh, the earth, the earthlings and the Venusians, um, it would really problematize the notion of their war by having them described so consistently with the same the same color imagery. No, yeah, I don't think it's 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 supposed to be one against exactly. the other. I don't think it is. I think in fact that like many possibilities for good, complicated, deep writing, um, Bradbury just didn't bother here. He really was, if we want to view it as working out his psychological difficulties, he really was sort of suggesting some people just get put in a position where they can't actually catch up with the war. Mm-hmm. The war is always beyond them. And by golly, if there were a way, even weaponless, to die for our side, it would be worth it. This can be seen as a very interesting autobiographical plea 
But for me, uh, judging it as a story rather than a historical mm-hmm. document, I have to ask, well, you know, this isn't 1944. Uh, we don't have the same sense about our current conflicts. Um, really, is this a story that not only shows its provenance, which all stories do, but also sort of belongs where it was? <laughs> is this a story that just, you know, you, you can't really think it's a good story unless you're willing to adopt a certain attitude and it doesn't make you adopt the attitude. It just sort of presumes it. That's that's my suspicion here. Hmm. And so um, I found the story helpful to me in focusing the question that is a legitimate one, I think, always in literature. To what extent are we reading this story because it is a good story? And to what extent are we reading this story because it is a wonderful story of its time? And to what extent are we reading the story because it is a story of its time? And I guess for me, this story helped suggest those three categories because, like you, I admire the technical skill that Bradbury so often demonstrates Uh, But this time, that's pretty much the best you could say about Mm -hmm. it. I think it's in that lower category. We read it because it's a story of its time. And in this case, also a story at a formative period in the life of a guy who later will become a significant writer. Yeah, it it is. uh, It is incredibly beautiful in lines. And and I think what he's doing with his character under the surface is so good. Um, I want to point out just a couple near the end here that uh, it's just, it's like, it's prose poetry here. Um, Burnett set his teeth together, bone against bone. Dead lips were stirring to life in Burnett's ears. Not so easily could they be ignored. And then in italics, you may never catch up with the war again. Farther down the page in the same column. He was thinking about the 3,000 eternal nights of young bodies being ripped, slaughtered, flung to the vacuum tides. Ten years of hating a job and hoping that someday there would be a last trip and it would be all over. Burnett laughed through his nose. Controls moved under his fingers like fluid loved, caressed, tended by familiar touching. And then... Creer's milky face floated dreamily into the visual screen, eyes sealed, lips gaping, hands sagging, clutching emptily at the stars. There's a sense of, like, a purposelessness, and this is him finding his purpose. Um, There's also a very uh, of-the-period description here. This is something very not science fiction-y future. Burnett moved his tongue back and forth on his lips silently, his eyes lidded, listening to the two of them as if they were a radio drama. It's... It's of... It's... uh, You think they've got radio drama in outer space, right? Uh, Clearly. Clearly. Not a television uh, drama, right? That's why he's got his eyes closed. Well, it's 1944. There there really aren't widespread televisions. I mean, it's not a... It's not a commercial... uh, product in america anywhere in the world at that point 
Um, well, I mean, t- television already exists, but uh, and in fact, Hugo Gernsback had broadcast television before this, but there was nothing like, you know, let's turn on CBS and see what's on tonight. That all starts after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's radio drama. But, you know, there there are so many thin assumptions here. Um, it turns out we're told that the. The, the Venusians didn't fight out of white malice. Mm-hmm. That if you could just capture their bad guy, why, well, you know, they would they would stop. They, I mean, come on, really? If we killed Hitler, then the war wouldn't have happened. I mean, it's come very on, folks. Gentle. Yeah, it's it's it really is an intellectually weak exploration of what war means, and it is, in my view a not very well motivated uh, exposition of what it is that Burnett wants. I can understand after 10 years of having to bring in dead bodies, you wish it were all over, but why you wish you could die in the process, that requires a little bit more than I think we're given. Uh, Unless, of course, it's 1944 and you're a gung-ho patriot. In which case, it's obvious why he wants to do it. Yeah. But that's one of the reasons I think that the story just doesn't hold up anymore. And that helps me get a sense of an evaluative scale. Yep. It's it's so interesting because it's it's so much Ray Bradbury. And with Ray Bradbury and all of his wonderful stories, I think there is always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.